morning, church. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Austin, and I'm going to begin with being very candid with you. I rocked my son from 1.30 to 3 this morning, and then I never went to sleep after that. I've just been up since 1.30 this morning, so this is what I'm coming to the table with. But I did hear from the Apostle Paul that Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness, so this dad is going to bring the sermon. But anyway, my wife and I love to host, and this is something that we've gotten back into the groove of ever since our son has gotten a little bit older, a little bit more manageable. Not sleeping, but a little bit more manageable. You see, Kara, she's a great cook, and I'm an equally great dishwasher, so we work together really well. We're a really great team. But what I love about hosting is after dinner, playing games. And yes, I love playing board games, but a game that I really like is on the TV. It's called Quiplash. Have any of you ever heard of Quiplash by any chance? A few of you. So for those of you who are not familiar, Quiplash is a game that you play from your phone that goes onto the TV. And everyone that's participating, they will get questions that they will answer in a funny or a witty way. And then the answers that they put they will go up on the TV anonymously for the other players to choose between. And whoever gets the most votes ends up winning. And the prompts are often ridiculous and hilarious. It makes for a really good time. The nature of the game, however, is everyone choosing one person's response over another, creating a division. Lighthearted, obviously, but it's a divide nonetheless. Sorry if that's super scratchy. Hopefully this is better. In our text today, Paul is unwillingly playing a game of theological quiplash. While he's trying to share the simple gospel, some are clinging to leaders who speak more eloquently. And with that, they're actually watering down the gospel. And rather than choosing the simple faith, the church of Corinth, they're looking for a group of elitism to be a part of, looking for the best leader to follow after all of which take away from the work that God is wanting to do through his church. While Paul's default answer is saved by grace through faith, the church was still looking for leaders with more prestigious answers to the faith. So let's see together how this is played out in God's word. This is going to be out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. If you'd like to open up in your Bibles, you can also raise a hand and usher can bring one to you. The words will also be on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't remember 
if I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to know your heart. We want to know you more, grow in you more, and look more like you as a result of being here and being under your word. So may we humbly come before your word, wanting to be molded by you. Holy Spirit, may you speak specific things into our hearts that we can hold on to and bring with us going forth from church today. In your name we pray. Amen. So in today's text, we have division in the church. It seems like not a whole lot has changed, at least church-wide in America. People will look at 2020 as a pivotal point of division, but it's existed since the beginning of the church. People will often say, ah, oh, if only I can go back to New Testament times, but if you take a good look, they look like today. Same issues, same hangups, same super faithful God that works through all of it. God's on the move, moving through broken people, working toward reconciliation. And my hope with this message is to lovingly lead us all into that heart posture, that of unity. And we see that is the heart of God. As Paul is appealing to the church of Corinth in the name of Jesus. And when we hear this expression, in the name of Jesus, it's a way of expressing alignment with the heart of God. When we ask that his kingdom would come, we pray it in Jesus' name. When we ask that friends and family would be saved, we pray that in Jesus' name. When I ask that I would catch a really good wave at the end of my surf, it's debatable whether or not that's in Jesus' name. But according to Matthew, even the wind and sea obey him, so perhaps. Paul here is writing, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in doing so, he's sharing that the following words will be in alignment with the heart of God. Unity, you see, it's not a side quest of the kingdom of God. Unity is the main thing, as it's reflective of God himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, he embodies unity. So Paul, he is pleading with the church to follow suit, quote, that all of you agree with one another and what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. But why is Paul writing this? Because he deeply cares about the family of God. You see, in the span of two verses, he says two times, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. It's as if he's really trying to hammer in the fact that they are family. Paul is addressing them as family to show it is a family matter. I don't know what it is about my face, but whenever I use this, it scratches a lot. Maybe this is a unique thing to me. So I'm going to switch over. Thank you guys for your patience. I'm just going to learn next time. This is like the third time I had to switch mics. I don't have a good face for this microphone. Why did you guys all laugh at that? Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, Paul is addressing to them that this is a family matter. He's using this verbiage to bring the point across. And we know this distinction between things that are family matters and things that are more casual with people we see from time to time. There are relationships that we have in our lives that are shallow camaraderie, to put it bluntly. 
Maybe people that you see at the office. You don't really cross paths much, but you, you see them across the office. Or maybe fellow locals at the gym or pickleball court. Maybe people that go to the same grocery store as you at the same time, same day of the week, or wherever it might be. With all these examples, we can get away with shallow camaraderie. We're just a, hey, how are you? How you doing? Good to see you. We should be intentionally ministering to people, but there's not always this huge expectation for depth. But in the Christian faith, you can only have family. In the Christian faith, every Christian is your brother and sister in the Lord. And that's why Paul is addressing this issue so seriously. This is a family matter. So Paul, he's taking up his role in the family by calling out the quarrels among you. And this is extra personal for Paul. For Paul, he was in Corinth for a year and a half, and he was able to establish solid relationships there. And according to our text today, Paul received word from some of Chloe's household, who according to church history, Chloe was a woman whose business interests caused her representatives to travel between Ephesus and Corinth. And as Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote this letter. As he received this information, the church is divided. There are quarrels amongst the church. And with this, are they being tattletales? Are they kind of being tattletales for telling Paul what was going on? Was it a low blow for the people of Chloe's household to say this? Absolutely not. It's on the church to call out that which divides, to cut it out before the infection spreads. And that's how we work together as a family. Emphasis on the word together. So some of Chloe's household, they spread word to Paul about division in the church of Corinth, division over leaders. But bringing it close to home, what do we as Christians divide over? Surely it can't be the same thing so many years later. It's the same thing. Leaders in theology and leaders in politics. These two topics surely do cause quarrels amongst Christians creating separate groups of Christians that are angsty toward one another, and they've become so divided that they could not believe the other party could be Christian at all. There's no way they could be a Christian if they believe in this or that. But you see, the issue here is the nature of this particular tension being rooted in a false theology, where a person may exchange the gospel for an elitism that goes beyond or even excludes the cross. Or to put it more simply, we mustn't go into a certain stream of beliefs that is so loud, it drowns out the still, small voice of God. You see, division in the church, it's not just harmful, it's bad theology, and it's antithetical to the way of Jesus. And truly, it makes Satan's job really easy. Sure, he can raise havoc in the lives of non-believers, but how much more effective would it be to cause turmoil in the body of Christ, creating animosity amongst brothers and sisters, and doing so amputating that which God wants together, the body of Christ? We feel a spirit of division amongst us. We need to check the source. And it's really unfortunate that division sells. It's really unfortunate. Like if someone were to put out a video or even a comment that's ragging on another belief, it could do really well online. That's just the reality of it with the algorithm. 
But success in what we do and say should not be an indicator of whether or not we're doing the right thing. Division going viral is exactly that. It's viral. It's a virus that is spreading and it's harmful to all who see it. So we mustn't go about things to receive praise in this manner. Rather, we do and act in a way that honors God and others, often done in small, humble acts. Now, with all that said, there are some words of Jesus on this topic that can be a little bit confusing. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. The words will be up on the screen. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will become the members of his own household. Now, upon first reading this, you might think, is this the same Jesus? This doesn't seem like the Jesus I know. But within context, Jesus is talking about his exclusive claims about himself being what divides others. Claims that he would say are, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or another claim like, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few will find it. You see, Jesus is both incredibly exclusive and inclusive. Exclusive in the sense that he is God and the only way to salvation, and inclusive in the sense that he is welcoming us all home, every single one of us. But his claims are exclusive nonetheless. Only he can be the Lord. So the only division then that Jesus brings are those who are in and those who are out. The basis being who receives his freely given grace. So then regardless of political party or stream of theology that we follow, we must be constantly following the lead of the Holy Spirit leaning so close to the Father that we may move to the rhythm of his heartbeat. We need discernment. If we swear allegiance to a specific group and act and react as they do, it will take the discernment piece out and make for a lazy faith. We need to be consistently praying for discernment. For in doing so, we will be able to find unity in the midst of disagreements we will be able to fight against the enemy's divisive schemes. Now, we see Paul in today's text addressing specifically division over leaders. Apollos, Peter, and even Paul himself. So he's not just casting shade on others, but he includes himself in being amongst those who are misrepresented. Quoting others saying, maybe you follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And Paul is up in arms about this. He even points out how ludicrous the situation is with verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What Paul's saying here is keep the main thing the main thing. Don't let any person or thing or stream of theology distract you from Jesus. What's ironic is Christian leaders can actually distract people from Jesus. As many people have become pastored by different Christian podcasters and social media influencers, often talking kind of about God without the use of God's word or even integrity to it. They just have their own thoughts and slap a Jesus bumper sticker on it. And what Paul is trying to get across is 
We cannot elevate people to the position of Christ. That's why he's telling the church about himself and Apollos and about Peter. We cannot elevate people to the position of Christ. And no one should, themselves should seek out to use Jesus as their own platform for worldly gain. Now, something some of you may be aware of is that social media has become a job for many people. Instagram and TikTok being two of the biggest platforms for work, and it's working out really well for some people. Like, I have a friend who didn't go to college, and now he makes more than doctors do with posting 30-second videos on TikTok. Let that sink in. This is the world we live in now. But anyway, there's a person on TikTok who has millions of followers because of his reaction videos. He will have a video that's gone viral side by side with a video of him watching it, and he will react. And oftentimes, he just has his mouth slightly open. And that is his entire contribution to the video. And for that, he has nearly 30 million followers. 30 million followers for watching TikTok videos with his mouth slightly open. For what? He's writing another person's work. He's just sitting there watching the video, using the other video to platform his own. I'm not saying he's doing anything wrong. It's a speculation. Perhaps he's doing something right. He has 30 million followers. He's doing something that I don't know about. But when we do this with God, using him as the platform for our own fame or status, then it becomes an issue. Turning the work of God into something of our own. And this is why Paul describes his ministry like so. Christ called me to preach the gospel. And with that, Paul recognizes that God is glorified as God shines through Paul's brokenness. As we see in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He's not saying he's anything special. Rather, he's saying he's the exact opposite. He is the chief of sinners, and he is set out to share the gospel he's received. He's not trying to elevate himself at all. And with that, he also states that his ministry was not necessarily to baptize. Paul did baptize some, as he noted. He gave a couple shout-outs and then candidly mentions he doesn't remember if he baptized anyone else. And I know there was at least one person who heard the letter or read the letter that was bummed that they didn't get a shout-out. They're like, dang it, Paul, I made you my mother's famous pita and hummus, and you don't even remember. The point, however, is not that Paul didn't see baptism as important. Rather, he didn't see the person who baptizes as important. Baptism is important not because of who performs it, but who performs it being God. So it doesn't matter if you're baptized by Billy Graham or Billy the Mailman. It's the work of God that does the saving. So Paul here, he's combating any self-made elitism that came from people being baptized by certain folk. Some people may have said, I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by Peter. And they're using it as a type of flex on other people. But Paul's saying, you're missing the point entirely. It's all about Jesus. It's always been all about Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. It's truly always an issue when Christianity is used as a platform for man rather than for Jesus as Lord. And as he notes, it's a benefit to Paul that he doesn't have this eloquence of speech or this wisdom. 
gives God all the more glory, not emptying the cross of its power. As Paul writes in verse 17, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So Paul's not using any fancy words to get his point across. He's telling it plainly. He doesn't want to dilute the power of the gospel. And commentators will note that this verse is Paul's way of contrasting himself with Apollos. Apollos, who is known as an intellectual, very scholarly. People would hang on to his every word. They would want to hear him speak. While Paul, as he states, he didn't preach with eloquence. He didn't preach with wisdom. Paul wasn't making a crazy show for himself. And with that, he gave all the more platform for God's hand to be revealed. We see that the fruit of this verse fleshed out when we look back on the Asbury revival. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Happened at the beginning of the year last year. February 8th, 2023, Asbury University in Kentucky at a chapel service, revival broke out. It all started at a scheduled normal morning chapel service. For those of you who went to a Christian college, you know those are mandatory. You have to go to those. So there were many kids who went involuntary. Some maybe were happy to be there. Some were maybe just waking up when they got there. And a guy, he preached a sermon at this chapel service, and he actually called his wife on the drive home, and he told her he did an okay job. It was meh. Nothing too significant about it. And as he reflects on the worship, it was okay worship. It was all right. It was, it was morning time, you know, the best they can do. But afterwards, something happened. After most of the students had left, a few students stayed behind in the chapel and began praying and repenting. And then slowly, more and more students began to go into the chapel and just kind of stuck around. And what started as a simple chapel with okay teaching and okay worship turned into one of the biggest moves of God in my lifetime. I'm 29 years old, by the way. Almost entirely consisting of people from Gen Z, the most irreligious group in the U.S. history, there were 15,000 people every day coming onto this college campus. Worship and prayer, day and night. People were bringing their sleeping bags in because they didn't want to miss anything. And this went on for 16 days total. People flying all over from Japan, from Russia, from South Africa, all to see the hand of God move on this campus. And how? It wasn't through eloquent teaching. It wasn't through crazy worship. The location, it wasn't Malibu. It was Kentucky. No offense to my Aunt Heidi who lives in Kentucky. But how did this happen? It was the power of Christ in motion. It had to be the hand of God. We see the same thing happen with the apostles in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Their descriptors are unschooled and ordinary. And even so, Peter preached a short message that saved just a casual 3,000 people. It just had to be the hand of God. There's no other way it could have happened. So again, Paul writes, 
not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Truly, the power of the cross supersedes any worldly wisdom or influence. And that power of the cross is what unites us. As Paul writes to the church of Galatia in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The power of the cross unites us. And that's what will get us to unity, church. It is by the power of the cross, for that is the only thing strong enough in the battle for our souls, not politics, not different theological stances, but the power of the cross. What Paul is after here for the church is koinonia. This is a Greek word for fellowship with God and one another. And that's what it means for us to be in Christian community, having common unity in Christ with Christ. As Paul puts it, perfectly united in mind and thought, or as is said in the NASB translation, that you may be made complete in. As we are united, we are made complete. Now, for those of you who are thinking, well, that sounds a little scary. Like, hold up, I don't want to be exactly like everyone here. It's not what Paul's saying, though. Unity and uniformity are not the exact same thing, just like division and distinction are not the same thing. There will be distinctions amongst Christians even as we are united in what matters most. This isn't a bad thing, but rather a way for many more to be saved, a way that many more people can have access to the gospel. As many different expressions of faith reach different personalities of people. Some people are naturally more contemplative, others have more charisma. Some are deep thinkers and others are a little more free-flowing. But as they are all keeping Jesus as Lord, living lives to know him, making him known and honoring him through all that they say and do, it'll be kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And I was able to experience this firsthand as I used to host a ministry called Shack Ministries. Perhaps some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's like one of my favorite things I've ever been a part of. But I started a week after my 18th birthday and it became a worship night on Saturday nights in a pool house in my parents' backyard, and then eventually at different coffee shops all around Orange County. And the night was simple. We would fellowship over pizza and cookies. We would do worship for an hour and a half to two hours. And then after that, we would talk about how good God is, sharing praise reports amongst the group of people. There wouldn't be a sermon. It wasn't a church service. And we recognized people would be at church the next day. And with that, this format, it provided a space for all types of Christians to worship together. Some people would be dancing. Some people would be singing quietly under their breath. Some would pray in tongues. Some would just stand there in reverence to God. It was the Baskin Robbins 31 flavors of Christianity. All together, all praising God. Many of them very different from one another. But what united them? Same Savior. Just different expressions of seeking him. In John 17, we see that church unity actually preaches the gospel. In John 17, 20 to 23, Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, Christ can and will unify us. He has given us the glory that we may be one and be brought to complete unity. And our unity, it preaches the gospel. Jesus prays to the Father that the church would be one so that the world may believe Jesus to be the Messiah. Our witness, then, is tied to our unity. So we cannot expect the kingdom of God to be pushed forward if our lives are full of divisiveness. If we're living in this us versus them mentality, for choosing, quote unquote, leaders to follow and degrading those who do otherwise, as Paul is addressing, for our witness only goes as far as our unity. The church's witness only goes as far as the church's unity. So how are we doing, church? There's not going to be multiple churches in heaven. There will just be the church. All of us brothers and sisters together worldwide under the lordship of Jesus. There's going to be many people that Christians have scolded over the internet that they will see at the table in the kingdom. People who voted differently. People who held on to different streams of theology together at the table. And it might be a little bit awkward for a moment. Just like it was with Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot when they were eating at the table together with Jesus. Matthew who was a Jew who sold his allegiance to those who oppressed the Jews and Simon the Zealot, who was a part of a vicious group that sought to end the Romans together at the same table. But if you really think about it, Jesus wouldn't have to pray for unity in the church if it was easy. If it was easy for the church to be unified, Jesus probably wouldn't have to pray for unity. But he did. He knew that it would be hard. For the church, it's simply made up of a bunch of broken people in dire need of a savior. But as we cling to this gracious savior, we will be given the capacity to be unified. In Christ, we are able to be unified. As we come before him like a child, as we come before Jesus like a child, as we see Jesus' words in Luke 18, verses 16 to 17, Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And why was Jesus saying not to hinder the children from coming to him? Well, in this day and age, they were the lowest of the low in that society. Yet that's exactly who Jesus welcomes in and to whom Jesus sets the bar. The bar is not set to the prestigious, eloquent-speaking, influential leaders, but to the children, children who will readily receive grace with no reservations, children who would play with others despite differences. We need to learn to listen to the kids. They have something to teach us. Now, we're going to go into a time of response where we come before the Lord with hearts of worship and repentance singing praises to him and repenting for the ways that we have fallen short, honoring him for all that he is and falling forward into the arms of Jesus. But before we even begin singing, I want to give us space to repent of any divisiveness that we have caused. 
Reminder, we will only grow in our faith if we're in a consistent habit of repenting. As John the Baptist told the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He told Bible scholars they needed to repent, those who should have it all together. And why? Because even really serious and devout followers of the Lord need to repent of their sin. And with that, we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit as we keep with repentance. And that's how cool our Lord works. It's not just repent and then God's like, you're forgiven. Rather, we grow in our faith as we continually repent of our sin. So will you all stand with me as we go into this time of response? Will you all bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, be it in little ways, big ways, ways that we're not even mindful of or ways that we have intentionally been. I pray that we would all lay at your feet any ways that we have been divisive. If it's been over politics, if it's been over different streams of theology, if it's been over anything that's gotten in the way of unity in the body. I pray that all my brothers and sisters alongside me will lay it at your feet, grateful that you, Lord Jesus, have grace upon grace for us, that your grace is sufficient for every downfall. And you don't count us out. We're not benched when we fall short. We're still in the game. You still have a good work that you wanna do through each and every one of us by your power and for your glory. So with this time of response, Lord Jesus, may we lay this at your feet and may we also sing these declarative praises of your goodness, of your majesty. God, you are so worthy to be praised. May you bring to mind as we sing these songs reason to praise you, be it ways that you moved in our past week or even bring up old memories of your faithfulness. Jesus, you are so worthy of it all. So we lay ourselves at your feet. In your name, amen.